We're going to be studying this new series in the book of Leviticus. There's a lot of blood and guts, but I hope you will see that it's actually beneficial to grow us in Christ. Let's pray together uh, again as we come to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that all Scripture is your God-breathed Word, able to make us wise for salvation and equip us for every good work. And so we pray now that you would continue to speak to us through the book of Leviticus, that we may grasp your holiness and how we may be pleasing to you. Help me to preach faithfully. Help us to grasp our need for sacrifice and help us to respond rightly, offering our whole lives as a living sacrifice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what does God-pleasing worship look like? What does God-pleasing worship look like? I think there's a lot of talk about worship today in churches. Uh, For many people, the worship is the key factor that will determine whether they stay at the church they're visiting or they go somewhere else. For some people, they think of the worship. When they think of worship, they think of the singing, the so-called time of praise and worship. I think, oh, does it move my heart? Does it make me feel God's presence and draw me nearer to him? Uh, And so very often the so-called worship leader uh, tells us we need to worship God in spirit and truth through our singing, praying that we may be ushered into the very throne room of God as we offer our praises to him. Uh, That's a view of worship that is influenced by the charismatic movement. But is that what acceptable, God-pleasing worship looks like? For others, worship is all about priests and rituals, wearing robes, uh, partaking in the Mass, uh, going through the right rituals. Uh, The church looks like the Old Testament temple with its altars and priests and liturgy. The priest pronounces God's forgiveness and blessing on those who participate in the right way. That's a view of worship influenced by Roman Catholicism. Is that what acceptable, God-pleasing worship looks like. Well, today we do turn to the book of Leviticus with all its priests, sacrifices, and laws. Uh, And at its heart, it is a book about worship. How can sinful human beings live in relationship with the holy God? How can they offer worship to him that is acceptable and pleasing? And though this book is clearly a very long way from us culturally, written over three and a half thousand years ago, it is absolutely crucial that we hear its message today. But before we dive in, some of us may be asking, why are we reading Leviticus? I mean, after all, it's a good candidate for the most unfamiliar and unread book in the Bible. Uh, it's the book that people usually give up when they're doing their uh, Bible in a year uh, reading plan. Uh, and so it's a book that most Christians have hardly read, let alone studied. I think in my all Christian life, I have heard one sermon series on the book of Leviticus, and that was in my university CF 20 years ago. And yes, I know it's hard to believe I am that old. Our trouble with Leviticus is it's so unfamiliar to us. All those sacrifices and priests and laws, it feels so far away from us. And so we struggle to see, how is this related to me? How is it related to Jesus? How is it related to my family and my work and what I do in the here and now? So why read the book of Leviticus? Well, firstly, uh, it's because this is God's word to equip us for every good work. 
Uh, 2 Timothy 3.14 says, The sacred writings, the Old Testament, they are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. That is, the Old Testament shows us how we can be saved by trusting in Jesus. But not only that, 2 Timothy 3 continues on the screen there, saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When it says all Scripture there, Leviticus is included. And so here at Cross and Crown, we're convinced that Leviticus, like the rest of God's Word, it is God's Word. And if you stay here with us long enough, probably have to take 40 years, uh, you will hear a sermon or a Bible study on every chapter and verse of the Bible. God uses Leviticus, every part of his word, to speak to us today that we may live out the godly lives that he wants. Secondly, Leviticus is a book about Christ and the gospel. And we saw that in the New Testament reading. But the risen Lord Jesus, he says in Luke 24, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, who wrote Leviticus, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Leviticus is the third book of Moses. And Jesus says that Leviticus, like all the scriptures, is about him. It's fulfilled by his death and resurrection. In fact, if we didn't have the book of Leviticus, we would have a hard time understanding what his death and resurrection was all about. It would seriously impact our understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness and why Jesus needs to be sacrificed on the cross in the first place so that our sins can be forgiven and how we should respond rightly. We actually need Leviticus to understand the gospel rightly. And so we must remember, Leviticus is God's word to us, but not God's word to us directly. I mean, we're not Israel in the promised land doing all these sacrifices. We must read it in the light of Christ. But in the light of Christ, it is God's word that we might be saved and equipped for every good work. Well, before we dive in, let's just set the context. We believe Leviticus is written by Moses around 1500 B.C., uh, the Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with God creating a good world so that God's people, Adam and Eve, can live in God's presence, the Garden of Eden, under God's blessing and rule. But of course, in Genesis 3, humanity sins. They reject the rightful rule of God. And because they sin, they are cast out of his presence because sinful people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. And God declares, because of their sin, they will surely die. But in Genesis 12, God promises to reverse the curse of the fall and restore his blessing to the world. To fulfill those promises, God redeems his people Israel out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. He leads them to Mount Sinai where they might worship him. And they were to be his treasured possession to make him known in all the world. And to do that in Exodus 20, God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, to show them how to live as his holy people. He gives them instructions how to build a tent, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, so that God might dwell with his people once more. But of course, just as soon as God gave his law, they broke it. In Exodus 32, they built a golden calf, a God threatens to remove his presence from them once again, like with Adam and Eve. 
But God listens to the prayer of Moses. He forgives God's people. And in Exodus chapter 40, the cloud of God's glory fills the tabernacle. And God's people live in God's place under God's blessing and rule once more. But of course, the book of Exodus leaves us with a question. How can sinful people dwell with a holy God? How can the holy God just forgive his people after such blatant idolatry with the golden calf? The most famous verse in the book of Leviticus is chapter 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I am, I the Lord your God, am holy. That's the key message of the book. God is holy and he requires his people to be holy too. But of course, Leviticus teaches us that they were not holy and we are not holy. And so how can unclean sinners dwell in the presence of a holy God? Leviticus gives us the answer. The answer is sacrifice. Look how Leviticus begins, chapter 1 and verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So Moses is reintroduced as the divine mediator of all of God's laws. God addresses Moses at the tent of meeting, the newly built tabernacle, and God tells his people they need sacrifice. Not a wild animal that they've caught, an animal that they own. They need costly sacrifice. How can sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? They need sacrifice, costly sacrifice. And that point is emphasized by the very structure of Leviticus itself. It's a book in two halves with a pivot chapter in the middle. Chapters 1 to 15, various rules about a priest and sacrifice. Sacrifices and rituals, we'll begin looking at that today. Chapter 17 to 26, the holiness code, various laws for holy living. And right there in the middle, Leviticus 16, the, uh, the day of atonement, the day of sacrifice, the one day in the year when the high priest could enter into the most holy place with the blood. How can sinful people live with a holy God? Costly sacrifice. And so the book begins, as we've seen, outlining five types of offerings that God requires of his people. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Let's look at each one uh, briefly and then step back and see how it applies to Christ. The Firstly, the burnt offering, chapter 1. This was the most common of all of the offerings. That's why it's listed first. It was offered morning and evening every day and even more frequently on holy days. It was offered to gain divine favor and it signified devotion or dedication to God. It was a way of committing yourself to the Lord despite your sin. The instructions explain what the worshiper does, what the priest does. The worshiper brings the animal, he kills it, he skins it, he guts it, he chops it up. And then the priest sprinkles the blood on the altar and discards the carcass on the fire. Now you can see how chapter 1 is structured with the same basic instructions repeated three times, depending on what animal you could afford. Verses 3 to 9, instructions for cattle. Verses 10 to 13, if it's sheep and goats. Or verses 14 to 17, uh, for birds. God offers some flexibility here. So that anyone could offer it, whether you were rich or whether you were poor. 
But whatever you offered, it had to be without defect. Look at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. See, God requires perfect sacrifice. Only the best is accepted. A male here is considered more valuable than a female. It's a costly sacrifice. And verse 3 explains the purpose of the burnt offering. He shall bring it to the tent entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So with this sacrifice, the worshiper could be accepted by the Lord. The sacrifice could make atonement for their sins. Now, there's some debate about what the essential meaning of that Hebrew word for atonement is. It may mean to wipe clean, that is, washing away the stains of sin. It may mean to ransom, paying a price to rescue a sinner from punishment. Uh, but the English word atonement, it's a made-up word to try and uh, express, translate this very concept. And the English word atonement, you can understand it by how it's spelt. At one mint. Atonement is about bringing two parties to be at one again through sacrifice. So, say for example, uh, God forbid you have upset your wife, you want her to forgive you, you want to be reconciled, you might do something to atone for your actions. You might help out with the chores, offer to cook dinner, buy her flowers. You hope that by your sacrifice, the relationship will be restored and you'll be at one again. But of course, the sacrificial system here it teaches us we can't simply atone or make up for our sins by our own works. God is angry with our sins and the holy God, he can't just sweep them under the carpet as if they never happened. The only way that sinners can be accepted or forgiven is through sacrifice, through a substitute who takes the punishment in full. That's why in verse 4, the worshiper has to lay their hands on the sacrifice. It must have been very difficult, isn't it? You have to identify yourself with that animal to remind you that this animal is, is your substitute. It's taking your place. Your sins symbolically transferred onto the animal. And then you have to slaughter it with your own hands to remind yourself that death is what you deserve for your sins. The blood is sprinkled on the altar, the outside altar, with the result that the sinner is accepted. Their sin is atoned for. They're at one with God again. And with the blood sprinkled on the altar, verses 6 to 8 record, what happens to the rest of it? Verse 6, he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it in pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, the wood that's on the fire on the altar. Its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water to make it clean. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So you see here, the, the whole of the sacrifice is burnt up. It shows just how costly atonement 
is. I mean, in those days, to be able to eat meat at all was a luxury. But to burn up an entire bull or ram, the offerer would have really felt the cost of that. Hari Raya is something that is celebrated in Malaysia. Muslims will sacrifice a bull, they call it, korban, sacrifice. I looked up the price to buy one of these bulls. It's 5,000 ringgit. There it would go, up in flames. You wouldn't even get to eat any Angus beef. But the result, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17, is repeated. It would be a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You see the point? You can't please God until your sins are atoned for. It doesn't matter how devoted you are, how committed you are to good works, how loud is your singing or how many rituals you perform. Unless your sins are paid in full by sacrifice, you cannot please God. God pleasing acceptable worship must have substitutionary sacrifice, what we call penal substitutionary atonement. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Penal means Penalty, the death penalty of sin must be paid. Substitution, the animal must die in your place. Atonement, cleansing, ransom, reconciliation. Penal substitutionary atonement. But if you had that, then you could please God. Well, the second offering was the grain offering or the cereal offering. They involved offering uh, grains, not animals, and they were nearly always offered with the burnt offering. That's why it's listed. Second, it could be offered alone, such as, uh, you know, gawai is coming, the first fruits you might offer to the Lord. You could do it separately, but usually with the burnt offering. What is the significance of it? Well, elsewhere, the word uh, grain offering, it can mean a tribute, a, a present that you give to an overlord. So when a king uh, conquered a land, very often they re would require the conquered people to pay money year by year as tribute so that the conquering king would be happy and he wouldn't destroy them. They could stay in good relationship. That seems to be the significance of the grain offering. It was a kind of tribute that the faithful worshipper offered to his divine overlord. It preserved good relationship with God. Now again, as the structure of chapter 2 shows, there's some flexibility with the grain offering. Verses 1 to 3, it could be uncooked cereal. Verses 4 to 10, it could be cooked cereal. Verse 11 to 16, there was various rules. Uh, verse 11 says you can't add leaven or honey because sacrifices need to be dead. Uh, verses 12 to 13, you must add salt as a symbol of the covenant. Verse 14 to 16, you have to add oil and frankincense to produce the pleasing aroma. But as with the previous case, the Lord make, the law makes it clear what the worshipper does and what the priest should do. Look at verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. He shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Notice again. God requires the best. It must be fine flour. Uh, notice the point of the offering. It's meant to produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
with the sacrifice offered, with God's lordship acknowledged, God is pleased. But notice this time only a portion of it is burnt up. The rest is given to Aaron, uh, uh, given to the priest as his portion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 applies this to full-time ministry. 1 Corinthians 9.13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The point is that those who for their work serve God, whether they're Old Testament priests or New Testament pastors, they should be provided for by those that they serve. And so if you benefit from this church or your Christian fellowship or from a podcast you listen to or a parachurch ministry or whatever it is, you should make sure that you give to support those who are serving you. Much more of that next week, I think. Notice also salt is necessary in every grain offering. This is emphasized in verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt symbolizes the covenant, uh, probably because salt can't be destroyed by fire. At least it requires very extreme heat. Uh, And so it's thus a symbol of an eternal covenant. God would always be faithful. And so God's people were called to be faithful. The salt reminded them. Well, that brings us to the third offering, the climax of these three, the peace offering or the fellowship offering. The idea of the peace offering was a meal that you ate together to express your fellowship with the Lord. Now, I think we kind of understand this as Malaysians, don't we? We like to eat. Food is important to us. Food is what you share with your loved ones, with your family, with your friends. It's why when we had our church anniversary, we we had a meal together. It's why we meet and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, a fellowship meal with the Lord to show that we're together, we're united, we're at peace. In many ways, the peace offering was an optional extra, which is why it is listed third. You could bring the peace offering in thanksgiving to God. You could do it to fulfill a vow that you made. You could just make a free will offering because you wanted to. And as you can see from the structure of the chapter, like the other offerings, there's some freedom in what you offer. Verses 1 to 5, you can offer cattle. Verses 6 to 11, a sheep. Or verse 12 to 17, you can offer a goat. But whatever you brought, you'd go through a similar process to the burnt offering. You can see that in verses 1 to 5. Verse 2, it had to be a sacrifice without blemish. Verse 3, you needed to lay your hands on it and then slaughter it. Verse 4, the priest had to throw the blood on the outer altar. And verse 5, it was to be burnt up to produce a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So even as you you willingly thanked God and celebrated your, your fellowship with him, your peace with him, you had to make a sacrifice. It's a reminder, there's no peace with God without the shedding of blood, without penal substitutionary atonement. You cannot be right with God. But with sacrifice, you can have peace with God. Now, notice the new element here, the emphasis on the fat. It's mentioned in verse 3 and then expanded in verse 16. Verse 16, the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever 
throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. I guess they were very slim in those days. I don't know. The fat belongs to the Lord. That's the part that God you know, eats in a way. The worshiper eats his part. The priest eats his part. And together they have fellowship together. So you see these first three sacrifices, they all belong together. The burnt offering, a sacrifice to make you acceptable, to dedicate yourself to the Lord, to make atonement. Grain offering, a sacrifice to express grateful submission to God's lordship. And then the peace offering, a sacrifice to express your fellowship, your peace with God. But in all this, no acceptance, no peace, no fellowship without atonement, but with sacrifice. You can please God. Well, in chapters 4 and 5, we come to the fourth type of offering, the sin offering. This offering and the guilt offering that follows are different to the others, which is why they're grouped last. The first three are more general. They're about expressing dedication, thanksgiving, and fellowship. But these final two offerings focus specifically on what to do when you sin, either accidentally or by omission. Or deliberately. You can see that in chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. Now, unintentionally here could mean that you didn't realize uh, what you did was wrong, or you, you knew that thing was sin, but you didn't realize that you were doing it. Uh, you weren't meaning to sin. But somehow you you did, and and now you need forgiveness from God. Uh, One time last year, I parked my car on the street uh, while I went off to get lunch. I paid for my parking, but I got carried away in conversation over lunch, and I overstayed the time I paid for by five minutes. I came back and found a summon on the windscreen. Very unlucky, but it was right, wasn't it? See, it doesn't matter that my blunder was unintentional. It didn't matter that it was only five minutes. Whatever my intention was, I still broke the rules. I deserved the summon. I promptly paid it. It's a good reminder for us. Unintentional sin is still sin. Whether we wrong each other or ultimately we wrong God, it doesn't matter if it was unintentional. It doesn't matter that you didn't mean it. It's still wrong. You're still guilty. And you need to confess it. You need to seek forgiveness. That's what's going on here with the sin offering. Now, you can see from the structure of chapter 4 that there's a different process depending on who has sinned. Uh, 3 to 12, the high priest. 13 to 21, if it's the whole congregation. 22 to 26, if it's a leader in the congregation. And then 27 to 35, the rest, the common people. I will come to chapter 5 in a moment. Again, the process is very similar to the burnt offering. Look at how the priest atones for sin. Verse 3, the sacrifice must be without blemish. Verse 4, he must lay his hand on it to identify it as his substitute. Verse 4 again, he must kill it. And then verse 5, he needs to take the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. And and verse 6, this time, because he's, he's the priest... He doesn't uh, sprinkle it on the, uh, on the altar that's in the outer courtyard. I think I've got a map here if we go to the next line. Yeah, so you can see that there's a bronze altar in the outer courtyard. That's where all the other sacrifices were made. But now because he's a priest, he doesn't do it at the outer altar. He has to go through that, that 
that first uh, curtain there and offer it on this second altar that is inside the holy place. He must sprinkle it seven times in front of the veil of the sanctuary and then go in and sprinkle some on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. Then in verses 7 to 10, just like the burnt offering, the peace offering, he burns the fat on the altar of burnt offering. That's the one outside. And then verses 11 to 12, the rest is taken outside of the camp to burn on the ash heap. If it's the whole community that sins, verses 13 to 21 describes basically the same process, except it's now the elders that lay their hands on the animal. But in verses 22 to 35, the process is different for the leaders and the commoners. If it's a leader that sins, they have to sacrifice a male goat. If it's a commoner that sins, it's a female goat or it's a lamb. And because they were not priests and they weren't allowed to go into that inner sanctuary, the holy place, this time, verse 25, the whole thing is sacrifice on the outside altar, the altar of burnt offering. See, the idea here is that the priest or the blood needs to penetrate as far as the sinner could go. So if it's the priest or the whole community, which includes the priest, you need to go into the holy place. If it's the other people, you need to go to the outer courtyard. The point is this. The blood allows you to draw near to God's presence. If you try and approach God's presence without blood, he'll break out against you. You'll be struck down dead. But if you follow the instructions, sacrifice the animal, bring the blood, you can draw near to God because your sins are forgiven. That's the refrain in this chapter, verse 20, 26, 31. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Sometimes people ask, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, why, why, if God's so gracious, why can't he just forgive us? Just forget about the whole thing. Well, here we're taught, God is a holy God. Sinners can't draw near unless the sin is paid for. The only way that forgiveness can come is if a perfect sacrifice is made. Chapter 5 now goes on to sins of omission. Verse 1, that might mean refusing to testify in court when you actually uh, have something to say. Verse 2 to 3, you touch something unclean, whether it's an animal or a human uncleanness. Verse 4, you make a rash oath. Whatever it is, however you sin by omission, whether it was intentional or it wasn't intentional, Again, atonement is needed by a sin offering. Uh, verse 6 says the price of compensation is a female lamb or a goat. But verse 7, if he can't afford a lamb, then he can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And then verse 11 says if he can't afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he can bring an ephah of fine flour instead. As before, you won't miss out on getting your sins forgiven because you're poor, God makes provision so that everyone can be forgiven while still emphasizing that sin deserves death. Well, the fifth and the final type of offering was the guilt offering or the reparation offering, chapter 5, 14 to 6, 7. This offering was for more serious sorts of sin, for breaches of faith against God's holy things or for deliberate sins done in rebellion against God, at least those that weren't worthy of capital punishment. 
as before, you can see that there are two categories. There's one category for inadvertent sins and then one for deliberate sins. Let's start with the first. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he's done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. Notice the new element here with this one. The idea of making compensation or restitution to the Lord. That is, not only did you need to offer the sacrifice to atone for your sins, but you needed to make good on your error. You needed to pay it back plus 20% penalty. So, for example, if you didn't pay your tithe as you were required in the Old Testament, well, that's a sin. Uh, And so you needed to make a guilt offering. But not only did you need to make the offering, you needed to pay your tithe and then add 20% on as a penalty for not doing it the first time. And this was the case not only for sins against God like that, but also deliberate sins against other people chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. So if you deliberately sinned by, say, verse 1, you deceived your neighbor and you you stole something from him, or verse 2, you oppressed him, or you you found something, instead of returning it to the owner, you just kept it for yourself and lied about it, or whatever you did, however you cheated another person out of what was rightfully theirs, well, first, you needed to make good with the person that you'd wronged. Verse 5, you had to restore it in full, and then add 20% compensation. And then, and only then, could you offer your guilt offering so that your sin can be atoned for and you can be forgiven by God. Sin against your neighbor is sin against God, and God wants it dealt with. Uh, It's this law that Jesus picks up in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. See the principle here. It's not simply enough to ask God for forgiveness. You need to make restitution in the best way that you can. Say, for example, you have a car crash. It's not enough to just say to God, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I was so silly and I had the car crash. Please forgive me. You need to make things right with the person whose car you crashed into. You need to pay to get their car fixed. Add 20% restitution. And so some of us this morning, we have restitution we need to make. We've sinned. We've failed someone. We've, we've, We've made a mistake. We have an apology we need to give. We have a bill that we need to pay. We have obligations we need to meet. We must compensate those that we have wronged. Because how we treat each other matters to God. God's forgiveness requires real repentance, and real repentance means not just filling what you did, but making it right, making restitution. I know there's quite a lot there, but let's uh, step back and see what we have learned. The first thing we see in these chapters is that sin is serious. Sin can't be ignored. It can't be swept under the carpet. 
God is a holy God. He requires his people to be holy. And sinful people cannot dwell with a holy God. The burnt offering needed the blood to please God. The peace offering needed blood to enjoy fellowship with God. The sin and guilt offering needed blood to be forgiven and approach God. Sin deserves death. By our very nature, we are unacceptable to God. We can't deal with our sins ourselves. Sin is a serious problem. See, a bit of religion is not enough. A few mere good works can't make up for it. You can't put a Band-Aid on a deep gash and expect it to solve the problem. Sin is serious. Every sin deserves death, eternal separation from God's presence. And therefore, secondly, we learn, substitutionary sacrifice is essential. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But but ultimately, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that takes away our sins. Because the Old Testament system we've, uh, we've looked at this morning was just a shadow that was pointing forward to the reality that Christ would bring. It was like a signpost pointing forward to the real solution that Jesus would bring. And that was the point of that New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me again at verse 1. Since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, wouldn't they have not ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices were effective to secure forgiveness, not because of the sacrifices themselves, but only because of what they pointed to, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so Hebrews 10 continues to explain what God ultimately wants is not uh, not sacrifices. He he wants us to be obedient in the first place, not not mess up and then say sorry for it later. And Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience that none of us have. Jesus is the one that kept all of God's laws fully. And, And so Hebrews says that means he's qualified to be that substitute, to be that perfect unblemished sacrifice for sins. You see the point? We deserve God's wrath. We have sinned against him. We should be slaughtered for our filth. But Jesus dies instead of us. He lives the perfect life we've not lived. He dies our death on the cross to make atonement. He wipes our slate clean. He appeases God's wrath and he does it once for all. He dies for all people all the sins of all people throughout all of history in one moment at the cross. That's what Hebrews 10.11 says. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And praise God, that's why we no longer 
need to make all those offerings listed here. Imagine that, having to come to church and slaughter a bull, slaughter a ram. I don't think I would want to be doing full-time ministry if that's what the job description wants. Thank God Jesus has secured forgiveness once and for all. His perfect blood shed on the cross so that now we can be forgiven. We can truly uh, truly draw near to God. At the cross, Jesus offers the perfect burnt offering. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. At the cross, he offers the perfect peace offering for our sins. Verse uh, Ephesians 2.13, you one who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. And he's the perfect sin offering, bringing forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And he could do all that because he was that perfect spotless lamb without blemish. As 1 Peter puts it, we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So substitutionary sacrifice is essential. And now through Jesus, we can offer acceptable, pleasing worship to God. Because not only does the New Testament point to Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sins, but in response to his sacrifice, it calls on us to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice to God. That's the point of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship. That verse is important because it it reminds us that worship is not just what we do here uh, as a church. It's all of life. It's all of the time. In response to Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, we are to offer our whole lives to God 24-7, 360 degrees, as William Taylor puts it. And Romans 13 to 16 tells us what that looks like. Using our gifts to serve each other, loving one another genuinely, showing hospitality to strangers, submitting to the authorities, refusing to judge weaker brothers and and, and other things too. It's, It's all of life. It's all of the time in response to Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews ends in the same way. We've already seen how it emphasizes the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, but it ends urging us to offer acceptable worship. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And what does this acceptable worship look like? Well, if you go to Hebrews 13, it tells us we we have to love one another, show hospitality, honor marriage, reject greed, obey your leaders, count the shame of following Jesus. It's not what you do in church. It's what you do outside of church in all of life. And fundamentally, this God-pleasing worship is about acknowledging the name of Jesus no matter the cost. Look at Hebrews 13, 11. 
the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. We've seen that. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, application. Let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So if we would worship God acceptably in a pleasing way, then we must so treasure the sacrifice of Jesus once for all on the cross that we're not ashamed to follow him, to confess his name before the world, no matter what may happen, to say, I am a Christian, no matter what ridicule or rejection may follow us. And so Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. No burnt offerings morning and evening like before, but every day you wake up, I'm a Christian. I follow the Lord Jesus. So finally, true worship must be God's way, not ours. True worship must be God's way, not ours. We've seen there's so much talk about worship these days, worshipping in song, worshipping in ritual, and so much of that theology is deeply flawed because it's so far from the Bible's actual teaching. Worshipping in spirit and truth, John chapter 4, it's got nothing to do with singing, actually. It means worshipping God through Jesus, the true temple who made the perfect sacrifice. And neither are we to recreate the Old Testament worship in our churches with robes and altars and sanctuaries and priests who re-sacrifice Jesus at the Mass or something like that. Jesus has fulfilled all of those things. He's abolished it, finally and fully. So worship is not something that you or I make up. God reveals to us how we are to worship him. We must worship on his terms, not ours, or face the consequences. God is holy. Sinners cannot draw near to God except through the perfect blood of the Lord Jesus. So as we end, let us hear again the words of Hebrews. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have made a way that sinners like us may draw near to you. We thank you for all these Old Testament sacrifices which point forward to that one perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness, the fellowship that he has secured for us. Thank you that one day we can enter into your very presence through his blood. And so help us to respond rightly to Christ's sacrifice, to so treasure it that we worship him in all of life, that we confess his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.